0: Good morning, church. I'm glad you were able to join us again this week. We're excited to hear the word or hear the songs that we've been able to sing. Uh, Excited to gather together in the spirit, whether you're there or here, we're happy to be together in the Lord. And I'm thankful that you'll be with us this morning. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and pull them out. We're going to be continuing our journey through Mark today. And we've been on this journey about what is the gospel And when we open the series, talking about the different things that come to mind when we come up uh, or come to this term of of gospel. What do we mean when we say that? Do we recognize that it, it means good news? Do we recognize that it has so much history with it? Do we recognize that there's so much baked into this, yet at the same time, it's something so simple? How do you describe it? How do you interact with it? How do you communicate it? You know, one of the big dangers that we talked about, particularly in the first week, but as we've continued on, is that the gospel often becomes something that we just need to mentally agree with, you know, whenever we encountered it. Uh, When we were young, when we were a kid, when we were, you know, in college, when we had kids and needed to come back to religion, what is the gospel and what are we agreeing to? Is it just something that I said yes to and walked the aisle and said a prayer But maybe for you, the gospel has something to do with Jesus and a cross. Maybe something to do with bad things, but you don't understand much beyond that. What is the gospel for you? And so we've been talking this past few weeks and something I appreciate about some of these more condensed series that we do is that it's a little bit easier to kind of hang a hook on every single week. And have something that you can walk with regularly, something that you can walk with and remember. And so I'm hoping that as we continue through these weeks, you're remembering some of these main themes that we're talking about with the gospel. We started our series with when Jesus speaks, his words have authority. Authority to heal broken bodies. Authority to calm the storms of life. And authority even to forgive someone of their sins. We talked after that about Jesus not only has authority but he deeply cares for us. He loves us. He cares for our inner turmoil and our sins. And he cares for our outer circumstances as well. Jesus loves us. And the danger is that we, like the disciples will be on the boat and say, Jesus, do not care. And it's when we don't believe that he cares that we turn to other things to save us. And so Jesus, as we saw last week with pastor Jeff is gracious But his grace is both rugged and sacrificial. And I appreciate those two differences that he unpacked for us as we walked through last week. It's rugged in that it confronts us in our sin. The law stands to judge. And it doesn't shy away from that difficulty. But it's also sacrificial in that he lays his life down for us. Grace is a servant. And we see that particularly in the Gospel of Mark as he illustrates that For us time and time again, Jesus is a gracious and humble servant. Now, these are all aspects of the gospel. And without all these things, you have no gospel. There is no gospel to stand. And what I appreciate about last week and the idea of finally laying down his life is it sets us up really well for where Mark is taking us this week in chapters 11 through 15. But for us, we're particularly going to be in 14 and 15 today. And so I want to ask you, what is the most pivotal moment in history? I would say for all humankind. And then particularly, what's the single most pivotal moment in history for you? You know, for all humans, the atheist might say the day that those cells came together and formed humankind. For the Muslim, they might say that the day that the Prophet Muhammad came out of the cave with his first revelation, from Allah. It could be something tragic, something that really changes the course of human history and is a pivotal turning moment. And what's interesting is every generation can point to something like that. Whether it's World War I, World War II, 9-11, what we're dealing with right now in the pandemic, World War III, whatever that might be. Of course, it could be something much more personal, the death of a loved one. It could be the day that you were married, we watched Hook last night with uh, with the kids, and was reminded that Peter's uh, crowing moment, his happy moment that causes him to fly, is the birth of his son Jack. And I remember more than my wife wants to about every child that was born. It's a special pivotal moment; it changes everything in an instant. It could even be graduation or the day that you land that job. It could be a multitude of different things. But if you are a Christian, the most pivotal moment in world history and your personal history is the cross. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if the cross is the most pivotal moment in history, then it demands something. Everything changes. And we've experienced that with so many lesser moments in history that everything changes after some of these things. And it is not more true in any point than with the cross of Christ. It demands that we live radically different. Now, this radical change doesn't come on easy. In fact, as we see in Mark chapter 11, the religious leaders of the time during Jesus' life had big problems with this radical, pivotal change that was coming. They knew his teaching, his influence, his popularity was undermining their hold over the Jewish people. He's taking what they came to know and love. And because of this, they were trying to find ways to remove his power and his influence. And in Mark chapter 11, verse 18, it says this, The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then we see, skip up to Mark 14, 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. All of their dark, dark planning comes together in Mark chapter 15. You see, they tried to go around the Mosaic law to make sure that they could quickly, quietly deal with Jesus, keep their integrity intact, of course. And I appreciate what Dr. Aiken says. He says, in the case of our Savior, not only was his life unfair, his final hours were unjust and illegal. It is difficult to count up all the violations of Jewish law. For example, in capital cases like Jesus's, trials at night were forbidden. A charge of blasphemy could not be sustained unless the defendant cursed God's name. And then the penalty was supposed to be death by stoning, not by crucifixion. And in Jesus' case, no formal meeting of the Sanhedrin ever took place in the temple, which was the proper location for a trial. Now Jesus, remember, told them this. What? All these evil things come from the heart. What did he list? Coveting, wickedness, deceit, murder, etc. And now what we get to see here in Mark 15 is all their evil hearts on full display. The fruit has come out Mark 14:43 through 44 immediately while he was still speaking Judas came one of the 12 and with him a crowd with swords and clubs instruments of war from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders now the betrayer had given them a sign saying the one I will kiss is the man seize him and lead him away under guard they have come to kill Jesus And as the moment in history goes, Jesus is taken to some kangaroo court. He is beaten and will be led down the road carrying his cross, where he'll be hung for all the world to see. And so this morning, instead of focusing our time on the events as they led up to the actual hanging of him on the cross, I want to spend our time to look at the time that he was actually on the cross. We are asking the question, what is the gospel? What happens when Jesus is actually put on the cross? Let's pray together. Father, as we look at your word, and particularly this harrowing time in human history, as we hung the Son of God on the tree, I pray that you would help us recognize the cosmic implications of everything that's happening around this moment. And Father, there is so much happening in such a short time here that changes just everything. It's what all time before was looking to, and it's what all time after was looking back at. Father, for the one day that we will see it completed when your son returns. I pray that we would take this text and hide it in our hearts. Father, in this very uncertain time of our life, where people are looking for any good news, that we might be broadcasters, that we might be light, that we might be displayers of what good news looks like, because we know it. We know the gospel. We know the one who made it for us. Father, help us this morning to know and love you better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 15, 33-34. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First thing I want you to see this morning is the loneliness of darkness. The loneliness of darkness. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land. Doesn't mean figuratively. <laughs> means what he says. Darkness overtook the whole land for three hours. Jesus dies in Darkness. It's not a solar eclipse. The Passover was held at the time of the full moon. This was a miracle. And, and what we want to do is think back to the plagues in Egypt. What does this mean? Where? Why does the sky go black? A song that we sing often. Uh, this is where it's coming from. The ninth plague was what? A three-day period of darkness. Three days, three hours in this particular case. And what happened after that three-day period? What was the last plague, the death of the firstborn. They died. And what did Pharaoh then do? He lets Israel go. Finally, he releases them and they may go. And so the firstborn child of the Egyptians dies because they didn't put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts. The lamb died in the place of the Israelites and the Egyptian firstborn dies while the Israelites were set free. It was a cosmic sign of God's judgment of sin poured out on his son. For three hours, the land goes dark. Judgment is coming. And then finally, the firstborn son dies. At the ninth hour, he cries out, why have you forsaken me? You see, the darkness is the sign that God had given his firstborn to die in the place of his people. That his beloved son, like a lamb, had given his life for their sins. Not only did Jesus die in darkness, he dies alone. He dies alone. In Mark 14, Jesus shares his final meal with his closest friends, and he tells them that one will betray him and that all of them will abandon him. Mark 15, 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is not just symbolic and literal it shows us a bigger picture of what Jesus is fully experiencing. Not was he just abandoned by his friends, his disciples. He's abandoned, as we're going to see, by God. You see, darkness is a symbol in the scriptures for chaos and disorder and separation from God. Not just from his friends in this moment, but from God as well. You see, darkness feels like rejection, extreme loneliness or disconnectedness there's this biblical sense when you see darkness that people are pulled away and are isolated and are alone and so isaiah 52:14 tells us this as many were astonished at you his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind jesus is experiencing this darkness of loneliness And rejection, he's not even recognizable anymore. The people that he has walked with for the past three years and shown them incredible things have abandoned him. Jesus is alone. And this is the worst rejection that there has ever been. Let me read to you from Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Jesus says these very words, echoing the psalmist. Now listen, was there physical pain of the cross? Yes, certainly, absolutely. Was there even psychological confusion that's probably happening here? Undoubtedly. Was there a, a dread of death? I'm probably going to say Yes. But that's not the biggest pain that Jesus is facing at this moment. You see, for all of eternity, Christ had enjoyed uninterrupted and complete joy and community with the Father. His days were spent treasuring his Father and his Father treasuring him. His days were spent in peaceful bliss and warm-hearted fondness. What, What were they doing? Their days were spent creating and ruling and sustaining and governing mankind and all the creation. And now, across eternity, for the first time, Jesus knows experientially separation and forsakenness by God. Now, the closest picture that we have to that is, of course, the garden. They were in perfect fellowship with God walking with them by the way. And when sin came, they hid themselves. They removed themselves from fellowship. They were ashamed and they covered themselves. Tim Keller says this, this forsakenness, this loss was between the father and the son who had loved each other from all eternity. This love was infinitely long, absolutely perfect. Perfect. And Jesus was losing it. Jesus was being cut out of the dance. Jesus, the maker of the world, was being unmade. Why? Because Jesus was experiencing our judgment day. Do you get that that's what's happening on the cross? It's not simply that he just died for our sins. We so often just leave it there. He's taking our judgment day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isn't a rhetorical question. The answer is for you, for me, for us. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. The judgment that should have fallen on us instead falls on Jesus. You want to know why the cross changes everything? That. How do we not live different lives if we know that? Why is it that we still live every day under judgment? Why is it that we still live every day trying to prove ourselves? The judgment has been taken from us. It rests on Jesus. Dr. Aiken goes on to say this. In this one moment in all of time and eternity, Jesus views himself and knows himself. Listen, not as the father's son anymore, but as the sinner's sacrifice. Complete identity shift. Complete sense of self as the God man. No longer the Father's loved Son, but the sinner's substitute. And Jesus would die alone, all alone, as that sinner's substitute. God separated from God. Who can understand this? So Christ is. Forsaken by God. What does that mean? Next thing I want you to see is the devastation of the death. The devastation of the death. We've seen this separation, this forsakenness. What about the devastation of it? What does it? What does it do? Romans chapter 1 says these things in verse 18 and following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And finally, verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Let me ask you a question. What is the worst possible thing that God could do to you? What's the worst possible thing. I I think no matter what stage of life you're in, your mind might go very quickly to Job, right? Those are the worst things. It was all the things. What else could he do? We see here in Romans chapter 1, a, a different spin on it. What's the worst thing that God could do? It would be to give us over to ourselves. To give us over to ourselves. What does that mean? Our, our culture, it just cries out, you just do you. Do what you want to do. Be authentic, you. Now, there's a big push and has been in the Christian church since I've been young. I'm not anymore since I was young. I should say it that way. To be authentic, authentic faith. It's not your parents' faith. It's your faith. Own it. Be you. The problem is that the authentic you has an evil heart that doesn't want God. So what do we do with that? You see, God's wrath against sin is fully on display when he gives us over to our own passions. We saw this earlier with the Pharisees. All that evil that was in their heart came out. It was finally on display. They've been rumblings before, there have been little actions before, but finally it comes out. I know that there are people in our church even this week that have experienced this from others. Evil, f- rumblings, evil actions finally out, and the fruit is displayed. There can be no mistake. It is not of God. But what it is, is their passions revealed finally and given over to themselves. We see this all over our culture. The murder of babies and abortion is us, our culture, being given over to our idolatry of freedom. Don't tell me what to do with my body. I have freedom over myself. At the expense of what? At the expense of who? Who? You see this in the decay of sexual morality. This is us being given over to our idolatry of sensuality. Do you understand that it can happen in here in the church as well? Let me ask. Do you understand that the blessings that you think you're experiencing in your life right now could actually be God giving you over to your own passions? How often do you ask that question? Is this blessing actually of God? Is it actually of faithfulness? We know that all things work together for good for what? Those that love God and are called according to his purposes. These every good and perfect gift, James chapter one, that comes from the father of lights above is a blessing from a father who loves us for those who are being faithful. Faithful. If you're not being faithful and somehow magically, you're getting everything that you want, that is probably judgment. Ask these questions. Are those blessings leading you to treasure Christ more than anything? The fact that you have this thing now, is it leading you to treasure Christ? Are these blessings leading to humility or to pride and arrogance? Are these blessings leading to deeper faith and repentance as you realize how loved you are by the Father? Because if the answer to those questions is no, then those blessings in your life right now are God's judgment on you. He has given you over to your idolatry. And the key picture is this. In Psalm 115, we know the praise chorus of that. We've sang it a hundred times. But in the middle of that passage, it talks about the others. Those who do not esteem God as most valuable, those who do not live in faith and repentance. And it says of them that they have eyes, but do not see, they have ears, but cannot hear. They worship the things made of their hands and they become like their idols. Brother, sister, when you encounter someone in the church who doesn't have eyes to see or ears to hear, and they become like their idols, God is giving them over to their sin. They become like it. Brother, sister, be careful that you don't become like your idol. You become like Christ, which is his chief business and the thing that he is always doing, or you become like your idol. You understand that eventually when we get to the end of time, hell will be God giving people over to their empty and vain pursuits. That is what hell is. It is certainly a place of fire and anguish, but it's more than just physical burning. It is a psychological meltdown of every day getting up and trying to do the same thing and never succeeding. God is basically saying, if you don't want me, then have it your way. If you want to be separated from me, here you go. Think about the devastation of this. And now we wander around half dead, living life, but spiritually in bondage and brokenness, walking in darkness. But here we can see, brother, sister, walking in faith and repentance, another beautiful facet of the gospel. Jesus was given over for us. Not only did he take our judgment, not only did he he stand in for us there to become the sinner's sacrifice, he was given over for us. Jesus never wanted to be separated from God. Never. He never wanted to be separated from him. He never wanted to have it his way. His concern was always to be doing the will of the Father. He always wanted to have it God's He always wanted nothing but perfect harmony with the Father and the Spirit. God was willing to cast his son out and Jesus was willing to be cast out into the darkness for people like you and me. Keep in mind that this crucifixion happened outside the city. He was cast out of the city for this. He literally goes through hell for us. He is given over for us. That is the devastation of his death. That's the depth of his death. He endures separation from God for you and for me so that all those who trust in his doing don't have to do so. He was forsaken so that we could be eternally Embraced. He never wanted to leave the embrace of the Father, and he did it. He did it willingly so that we could be eternally embraced. And let me stop and say this this is the pinnacle of the gospel, his life for you, his life for yours. You were not right before a perfectly holy God, and nothing you can do could ever measure up. Jesus pays the penalty for your sins. Believe and trust in him. This is the gospel. His life for yours. Believe and trust in him. And so the call is for us to believe and trust in him. Next thing I want you to see, final thing really, the demand of the destruction, the demand of the st- destruction. Continuing on in Mark chapter 15, verse 37, it says this. This is an interesting picture for us and something that we have to take a moment to, to wrap our minds around. There's so much happening right here. Verse 37 Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he perished, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. What's the demand? Can you catch it in that passage? What's the demand? Because something shifts. There, there is a major shift here. And that primarily is this. The curtain is destroyed. The curtain is destroyed. It's, so what? Right? piece of fabric. Decorative, I'm sure, for the temple. Well, it's so much more than that. This curtain... Represents so much. It is ripped from top to bottom. It's gone. What does this curtain represent? It represents the reality that sin has separated man from God. This was the defining line. He is holy and we are not. The curtain between mankind and the holy of holies, where God's glory dwells, has been there for a long time. The defining line that separates us. Now, there's so much that happens right here. First, it, it signifies the complete, perfect, and altogether sufficient sacrifice for sins that Jesus has offered in himself on the cross. The complete, perfect, altogether sufficient. The sin that made this wall between us and God, both spiritually and naturally has been paid for completely. The sin has been removed. We'll talk about some implications of that in just a minute. The second thing I want you to see in this curtain is this. It's the end of the Mosaic covenant and its laws. The end of the Mosaic covenant. These laws have all been fulfilled in Christ. Now listen, the commands, they don't go away, Okay. The commands don't go away. The expectations of holiness don't go away. We're going to talk about those implications. You have to understand that this is a rampant false belief in our day. There are so many in our culture and in our churches that say we've got Jesus, so we've got grace, so we don't need the law. The law is still in place because it is eternal. Why? It proceeds from the Father. The law came from God. Nothing that comes from him is not good. The law came proceeding from the Father, and it's simply this. It's a tangible, a a touchable, an interactingable representation of his holiness. This is who God is. This is what it means for him to to be holy. But what has happened now is that Christ has lived perfectly in light of the law. And so now the curse of the law has been removed. The fact that the law points to our need for God, but can't deliver us from our plight. We can't keep the law. It is as a curse in that way. It shows us that we need God. And so now that there has been a man to live it perfectly, the dividing wall has been torn down for those who are now in Christ. Third thing I want you to see, is that it points to the fact that God in all his glory is now freely and fully accessible to all men and women who come to him by faith in Jesus Christ. You can come in now. You can come in. You see, before it was only the high priest that could enter into the Holy of Holies. Only at certain times and with great stipulations. Everyone else had to experience God by proxy or through the high priest. God's glory was hidden from the world behind this curtain. Access to God was incredibly limited. And for centuries before the coming of Christ, God had confined the revelation of his glory and his majesty to the Holy of Holies. This special, singular place. Now listen, access to God is still limited. You can only get there through the blood of Jesus. But the blood of Jesus is available to all people. Whoever's covered in his blood has access to God. Not just to be there. Okay, Catch this. There's so much more than just being there. (coughs) There's so much more than just being in the Holy of Holies. We get to experience it. We get to to see his glory, to behold him. We know that if we have seen Jesus, we have seen the Father. We get to look upon him and live. One author says this, Now he bursts forth to dwell no longer behind a curtain in a house built with wood and stone and even precious jewels, but to dwell in the hearts of his people. Changes everything. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us, through what? The curtain. The curtain. Here it is. Him explaining for us what this means. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, what? Draw near. Let us draw near near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We get God. We get Him. He now is pleased to dwell in you. But this destruction demands something of us. This destruction demands something. What does it require of us? First, we have to fight for unity around the glory of God in the blood of Christ. Fight for unity. You want to see how important this is? Go to John chapter 17 and see how big of a deal it is for Jesus leading up to these events. You know, our world unifies around all sorts of things, political causes, skin color, music type, religion, social issues. You see our governor even calling now for us to, to gather together as Ohio, as if Ohio State's not good enough to doing that for us. But we have to gather now as the people of Ohio, we gather, we're all in this together. We're all in this together in the fact that we were all sinners and we we're all destined for hell apart from the glorious intervention and grace of Jesus Christ. That's what unifies mankind, what unifies us, this blood of Christ. This blood of Christ. The people of God are united by one common thread. They're all washed in the blood of Jesus and now given access. Given access to God. It changes everything. So now we're no longer separated by preferential things. There's a lot of things that some of y'all like that I'd... Listen, I like a lot of things, but some of those I'm not really that into. You know that I enjoy lots of things. I know some of you guys don't dig it. I know some of you don't even like coffee, which I'm still praying for you. Um, Tea's great. It's not coffee. Uh, There are lots of things that we are into, but it doesn't matter. The preferential things don't matter because we have this unification around the gospel. It's the one thread that ties me to you and you to them. So we have to ask the question, as a church, particularly in a time like this, what are we really unified around? If it's not this stuff that we're talking about today, then we're not united at all. You see, it's easy, even in a church like ours, to not know what we're truly unified around. That's why I appreciate so much about uh, Pastor Jeff, this past weekend, our staff meeting, saying that we're still the church. We're still doing the mission. This is... We do what we do, nothing changes. It'd be easy to be unified around a preacher, a style delivery to the the version of the songs that we do, to children's ministry, to the way that we talk about politics, the way we dress, the way we think about money, the teams that we like. Now, none of these are necessarily bad, but the problem is, is that we're called to be unified around not those things, but around Christ. And it's not until we're pressed on those things or placed in a community with people unlike us that we discover what our unity is really all about. It's not until you are quarantined in your home for two weeks that you find out what really drives you. Are we still unified? Was our church built around the blood of Christ or around something else? We have to fight for this unity. There's so much at stake. You can see again in John chapter 17. There's so much at stake when it comes to the unity of the church and the blood of Jesus Christ. We fight not simply to be unified on something, but for unity around the glory of God and the blood of Christ. That needs to be what we talk about on Wednesday and Thursday night. That needs to be what we talk about at our table, that even in our own families, we are united by the blood of Christ. Second thing I want you to see demands of us is that we're priests. We are priests who stand in the Holy of Holies, covered in the blood of Jesus, pleading on behalf of others. We ask God to redeem those around us, that they might also be brought in. The curtain is torn down for all people. They might come by the blood of Christ. And so we go to those around us at a distance and offer them the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People are looking for hope right now. Are you a hopeless person or are you full of hope for the future? This is not the first dark time of history. And this, as we've seen today, is not the darkest moment. Hope stands. We have so much to offer. And the blood of Christ. So we need to have space for the marginalized to flourish in our communities. Like we see in this passage with the women or the poor that they did during Jesus' time. So we even saw last week that he would give scraps to dogs. Yet he lavishes grace on all of us. And so we have to have a hope to offer the world that cares for the physical and ultimately the spiritual issues as we saw with Jesus. Jesus did not just take care of their circumstances. He forgave sin. Are you worried about the sin of others in your life? Are you worried about giving them the hope of the gospel and saying the blood of Jesus demands something different of your life? Last thing I want you to see is this. We are to draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance. Really like this as kind of a send-off this week, with what we're dealing with in our culture right now. Assurance seems few and far between right now. There are, it feels like there is nothing that is assured right now. Times at home change from a matter of hours to a matter of days, to a matter of weeks, to a matter of months. Finances don't seem assured. Jobs don't seem assured. Gatherings together don't seem assured. So what can we do right now as the people of God that we can do with full assurance? Draw near to God. Draw near to him with a true heart and full assurance. Listen, what good is it to have access to something and yet to never go there? Some of you are saying, I have one of those. It's a gym membership. You really can't go there now. What good is it to have something? To have access to that sports car in the garage and never drive it? To have that toy that you've been saving up for a long time and played with it three times and never use it? For me, in living in my head and having ideas, it's a good idea that I never act upon. (laughs) Something that... I deprive the world of because I don't bring it to fruition. It's like a beautiful painting in the mind of a painter never to be put on paper or canvas and enjoyed by others. What a tragedy. And in this particular case, we are instructed to what? Draw near to God. Draw near to your Father. He made a way. His judgment was taken. You can walk right in with full assurance. So what is the gospel? Jesus speaks and creation obeys. Jesus' words have the authority to pardon sinners. And yet Jesus is caring and deeply loving in his authority. And it's God's rugged and sacrificial grace that reveals our need for a savior and shows us the offer of this savior. And today it's the cross where we actually see our Savior saving, doing the work of saving. See, in all his glory, Jesus takes on the sin that you and I committed, that we chose to do. He takes it. The sin that that separates you and I from God, the sin that tastes like death, separates us from him. And God places that sin on Jesus' back. And then God, in all his power and might, pours out his just wrath onto Christ and onto our sins. Satisfying his just requirement of payment for that sin. And for that first moment in time ever, Christ is forsaken by the Father. He's alone. He's in darkness. And he enters into that chaos of sinful brokenness. That sinful brokenness that leaves us feeling isolated. He says, you're the only one that struggles with this. Why can't you get your act together? This brokenness that causes problems at every turn in your relationships. This brokenness caused by our sin, he enters into that and takes it. And he takes the wrath of God do that, that forsakenness, that loneliness, that devastation of death for you and for me. Why? So that you and I would never have to face that. You will never have to face that church. The father now gets to look upon us as his adopted children we are united with Christ. We are co-heirs of the blessing, righteous and holy because of Christ. That is what he sees when he looks at us, the trial's over. Not only did he take our sin, he gives us his righteousness. That righteous life lived according to the law he gives to us. And it all happened on the cross. At the ninth hour, the gavel came down and said, Jesus, guilty and pardon for those who trust in him. Can't you see the glory of this? That this is what the Christian church is. Not just believes, it's what we are. Don't you see the treasure that's yours? When we talk about treasuring Christ together as a church, it's this, it's this. Look at the gospel, Jesus dying for your sins, taking your separation from God and behold your King lifted high His kindness, His goodness and His mercy. His mercy of His wrath poured out on His Son instead of us. And when you behold that, this Easter season, when you behold that, that is when you will draw near to God in full assurance when you treasure Jesus as your Savior. Father God, we thank you so much for the truth of the gospel, the liberating life of Jesus for our, our own behalf. Father, that your son took the punishment, he took the separation, he took the judgment, and we have to experience none of that. Father, forgive us for trying to live under some false condemnation. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, you have taken the curtain and torn it in two. And you have taken your children and placed us in your Son. We are in Jesus Christ. Covered with his blood, his righteousness as if it is our own. Father, you see us with nothing but love. And it is so hard for me to still believe that. Father, forgive us for trying to meet the law on our own. We cannot. Father, you are holy and we are not. Let us trust, enter in, lean into, draw near to you and your son. It's the only way by which man might be right with you. Father, we thank you for your son. Thank you for what you're doing in this church and drawing so many diverse bodies together. Father, doing something that None of us saw coming, something only that you and your infinite wisdom and humor could come up with. Giving us a picture of three bodies coming together as one now, Father, and in and, and view of the day when people from all ends of the earth will come together. Father, you are amazing and incredible. Let us draw near to you. Father, we love you. We pray all this by that access through your son's name. In Jesus Christ, amen.